Morning, church. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. As we continue our study through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 27, and we'll read through verse 30. Please follow along as I read God's holy word. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of God for us today. Would you join me in prayer? Well, Father, we come into this portion of the service to come under your word. And this is a searching place to be. Your word divides between flesh and bone between soul and spirit. So it searches us, but your word is not a cold word. It's not a, it's not a bad word or a mean word. Your word comes with a word of love and grace and forgiveness and help. So, We pray, minister your word by your spirit to us today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the New York Federal Reserve Bank is by far the largest and most influential Federal Reserve Bank. It's located at 33 Liberty Street in Manhattan, in case any of you were wondering that important detail. The stone exterior is imposing. It looks like a financial fortress. But what's most interesting about this bank and about this building is not what transpires in the 14 stories above ground, but is what is buried almost six stories underground. Built deep into the bedrock is the Federal Bank's gold vault. And with deposits from central banks around the world, this vault contains more than 7,000 tons of gold. That's more than $250 billion worth of gold lodged into this vault. It's the largest accumulation of gold in human history and around 5% of all the gold that has ever been mined. And so to safeguard this vast fortune, Engineers dreamed up this invincible vault. 
Uh, it's built, like I said, into the bedrock, and it's got walls of steel that are layer, or that are reinforced with concrete, and, and there's only one entrance and one exit to this vault. It's a nine-foot thick, 90-ton steel circular door that is itself encased in a 140-ton steel and concrete frame. So it's a circular door. It kind of opens to the, to the pathway in, and then it closes. And when it closes, it creates a complete and absolute air and watertight seal. And then to get into this, you need various people who know the combinations and the locks and all that, and they all have to be there together, working together to open it. So this exceptional vault is drill-proof. It is flamethrower-proof. It is bomb-proof. Now, if you've ever seen the movie Die Hard with a Vengeance, they break into this vault by boring into a subway, through a subway tunnel. No, that's actually impossible. You couldn't actually do it. This is one of the most secured vaults in the world. Why? Because it contains one of the vastest, greatest fortunes in the world. More gold than anywhere else ever. What's my point? We protect what we prize. We guard what we value. Now we're in a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching us about God's law and we need to understand God's law rightly. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. God's law stands guard over what is precious. It's like the walls of a vault safeguarding a treasure within. And so last week we looked at the law against murder and anger, which are designed to protect life and relationships. In a couple weeks we're gonna study the law against divorce, which protects marriage. Then we'll go on to study laws that forbid oaths, which protect truth. Uh, forbid retaliation, which protects justice. Forbids hating your enemy, which protects pure love or actual love. But today we're looking at a law against sexual sin. And its design is to protect sexual intimacy. Now, I realize there are a lot of kids in our midst today. I've got a whole few of them that are my own, aged nine months to 11 years old. So, kids... Listen up, some of what I'm going to say today will make sense. Some of what I say today will not make sense. Some of what does not make sense, your parents can clear up. Some of what I say that doesn't make sense, your parents cannot clear up until you're older. But here is what this passage is all about, and I'll say it so that even you kids I think can follow this. Sex, which is what we're gonna talk about today, is a way of sleeping together that only a mommy and a daddy can do. And Jesus' message to us today is that sex is worth protecting at incredible cost to ourselves. Jesus' message sounds like a big don't, 
but it's actually a big positive. He wants us to protect something that is incredibly value. So go back with me all the way to Genesis chapter one here for a minute, okay? We are told there that God created the heavens and the earth, right? And that's a Hebrew way of saying that he created everything from the top to the bottom, meaning God created everything, all right? So let's have a little interaction here for a second, okay? What did God keep saying after he created everything? That it was? Good, excellent, right. And on the sixth day, what was the climax of his creation? In other words, what was the best thing he created? What was the highlight? What was the end? Man and woman. That's right, male and female, the two. And what was the first command God gave them? Don't be afraid, not, not, not to eat from the tree. It's a good guess, but not that one. What is it? Be fruitful and multiply. Parents, you know what that means. God's first command is to go have sex. And we have a... <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I think we have a view of God as if he were some big prude in the sky, shocked and scandalized by sex, but he's not. God made it and he gave it to us. Sex is God's gift to married people. God could have made us procreate in any way he chose, right? I mean, he could have made it a handshake. Praise God, he didn't. He gifted us sex. So God doesn't just tolerate our enjoyment of sex. He actually delights in our enjoyment of it, just like we delight in our kids enjoying gifts we give them. Sex is God's good gift to married couples and it's a part of his creation that he called very good. Now this is really important. If you're taking notes, write this one down. We were sexual creatures before we were sinful creatures. Have you realized that? We were sexual creatures before we were sinful creatures. God made us sexual beings and commanded us to have sex back in Genesis one before the fall into sin in Genesis three. So we were sexual before we were sinful. Now this side of the fall, this side of Genesis three, we, we are still sexual creatures, which is good, only now we're also sinful creatures, which is bad, but sin is bad, that doesn't make sex bad. It isn't. Only sex outside of God's design is bad. Only sex out of the way that he gave it to us, out of his, out of his gifting to us, that's bad when it's outside the bounds of a husband and a wife. Okay, so Song of Songs, also called Song of Solomon in, in, in your Bible. Your whole, it's a whole book of the Bible that revolves around the delight of sexual intimacy in marriage. It literally revolves around 
sexual intimacy in marriage. It's written in a chiastic form so that one half of the story is mirrored by the second half of the story. In the very center, the verse at the very middle of it is the celebration of a man making love to his wife on their wedding night. Song of Songs, chapter five, verse one. I came, this is the husband. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my, my wine with my milk. And then he invites us, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This is ancient poetry, but we get the point. Even in a, listen, even in a post-Genesis three world where sin takes everything, God still says to us, sex is something to be enjoyed and celebrated. He still invites us, married couples, to get in on this. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That is God's word to us. Probably not what you thought you you were gonna wake up and come to church and hear today. But this is God speaking frankly to us. Now, here's the thing. It's only when we see sex as this good gift from God, as this priceless gift, that sex brings us as physically and as spiritually close to another person as we can possibly get. That there's just this, this beautiful freedom and this bare intimacy insects that is both powerful and sacred. Only when we understand this and appreciate that can we appreciate why God encases it in marriage and fortifies it with his law. Sex is a gift to be guarded. And this brings us to our text. In verse 27, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting the seventh of the Ten Commandments here. The law of God forbids adultery and the punishment for adultery was death. So for example, Leviticus 20 verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. See in the Old Testament, adultery was severely punished and This is for two reasons. No, first, it protected God's people. Second, it showed them how serious adultery is. Few things bring more pain to more people than infidelity does. Adultery shatters lives. It destroys families. It despises God. And sadly, some of you know this all too well. So what Jesus is doing here is he's not correcting God's law. Remember, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law of the Lord is perfect. So Jesus isn't correcting God's law, but he is correcting the teaching of the law in his day. He's correcting what was popularly taught. That's why he says, you have heard that it was said. He's saying, listen, this is how it's popularly taught by the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. They have reduced sexual immorality down to its bare necessity or bare bottom of just adultery. 
They made it something committed only externally, not internally. And really, that's not something all that different from the culture we live in today. Surprisingly, uh, recently I came across a quote from a prominent, prominent atheist and philosopher. You've probably heard of him, Sam Harris. It's from his best-selling book, The End of Faith, and he's talking about, at one part, and he's talking about ethics, and he argues this. He says, taking happiness and suffering as our starting point, we can see that much of what people worry about under the guise of morality has nothing to do with the subject. It is time we realized that crimes without victims are like debts without creditors. They do not even exist. So what Harris is arguing here is that a sin, like sexual immorality, in the heart, a lust in the heart, isn't really a sin because it doesn't hurt anybody. And that's the popular view in our, in our culture today. That sins, like sexual immorality, that it's all external. It's only if it hurts somebody. And this is remarkably similar to what was taught in Jesus' day. They had reduced God's law down to, does anybody get hurt? If so, guilty, if not innocent. And against this, Jesus teaches us a righteousness that far exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not doing away with God's law, he's deepening our understanding of it, and Jesus wants to teach us that the problem of sexual sin goes a whole lot deeper. So point number one this morning, the problem is an affair of the heart. The problem is an affair of the heart. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now let's understand here what Jesus is condemning and what he's not condemning. Jesus is not condemning our appreciation of someone's appearance. There are beautiful people in the world and it is not wrong to notice them. Jesus is not forbidding looking, but looking with lustful intent. And there's a difference. One happens, the other is made to happen. Here's a definition for you if you're taking notes. Looking with lustful intent is looking at someone other than your spouse in order to fuel sexual desire. Looking with lustful intent is looking at someone other than your spouse in order to fuel sexual desire. So Jesus isn't talking about seeing and appreciating beauty in someone. That can be a holy thing. It can be like looking at a sunset where you see divine beauty reflected in it. It's, it's not seeing and appreciating beauty that Jesus has a problem with. It's what we might do after that. It's the second and the third glances that Jesus is worried about. It's, it's the studied look. It's the searching of the figure. It's letting the imagination go. It's replaying the movie scene in your head. Martin Luther said of this passage in his funny way, we should not make the bolstering of Jesus' teaching too taut here as if anyone who is merely tempted to look at another with lust is eternally damned. I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but 
I can certainly keep it from building a nest in my hair. I think he goes on to say, and from biting off my nose, which is a very Luther way to end that. He's saying, I can't help who walks by me, but I can, you can bet I'll be, I can make sure that I don't use them to fuel my sexual desire. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Lust does the opposite. Lust does the opposite. It uses your neighbor for your own selfish gain. Lust objectifies your neighbor so that you can selfishly fuel your sexual passion. Now, if you look again at verse 28, there's actually another way to translate it. In the ESV, it says lustful intent, and I think that's probably, I think that's right. I think that's the primary meaning, but you could also translate it as so as to get them to lust. So as to get them to lust. As in, in other words, as in to incite lust. And with this understanding, Jesus is also condemning any action you take to get someone to lust after you. So the problem here isn't dressing attractively, but dressing seductively, dressing invitingly. So some of us have a problem with wanting to lust after, but others of us have a problem with wanting to be lusted after. And all of this, Jesus says, is an affair of the heart. It happens in a deep and secret place. It happens in your inner person where nobody else can see it. Your best friend can't see it. Your parents can't see it. Your pastor can't see it. The software on your computer can't see it. And your spouse can't see it. Just you and Jesus. This is the affair of the heart. And listen, this, this, this is a church that is a citadel for God's gift of sex. We work to protect it as a good and treasured gift. But this church is also a hospital for sexual sinners, which all of us are. We offer hope and healing for sexual sinners, and that hope and healing is not in us, but is in Jesus. Because of Jesus, we don't have to hold our breath wondering what God thinks of us with any of our sin. Because of Jesus, we know God adores us. And because of Jesus, we know God forgives us. Not in part, but in whole. Because of Jesus, we can insert our name into Psalm 32, verse two. Blessed is the one. Blessed is Jace Hudson. Blessed are you whose sin the Lord does not count against him. If you've trusted in Jesus, that verse is true of you. Here's the deal. We are all adulterers here at least in heart. We have all had an affair of the heart, and since all sin is some form of spiritual adultery, we are all truly spiritual adulterers. But if we have been truly forgiven of God, then we are going to want to be faithful. 
This is the way, this is the way Jesus wants his followers to approach combating lust in their life or, or fighting sexual sin. Here's the stance that we take. We are all forgiven adulterers. And like any adulterer who comes back to a marriage truly repentant for what they have done, if they are really forgiven and repentant, they want to do whatever they can to make sure they don't go back to where they were. They wanna be held accountable. They wanna say, here are all the places where I was tempted. Do not let me go down that road again. If you're truly a repentant adulterer, you say, no way to that. And Jesus says, that's my disciples' approach to sexual sin. No way, I don't wanna go down that road. I've been down the road of sin before. I'll do whatever it takes not to go back down that way. I've been forgiven. And out of the freeness of forgiven, we fight our sin. And so that leads us to point number two this morning. The solution is an amputation of the hand. Freely cut off. Verses 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. All right, here's how we're gonna apply this. After the service, we're gonna have a time of prayer and I'll have a knife up here. (laughs) And we'll see who's really following Jesus. Right, God, Jesus is not calling us to actually mutilate our bodies. This is obviously hyperbole. It's for shock effect. But Jesus is very serious. Listen, sexual intimacy as God designed it and Jesus restores it is such a precious gift It's such a wonderful treasure that we have to be willing to get violent with our own lust to protect it. The Bible has a lot more to say about being freed from sexual sin than only this, but it doesn't say anything less than this. And I think the church in America, I think our church right here desperately needs to hear this because we can convince ourselves that if we've prayed a prayer, then even then if we're lackadaisical about our lust, about lust in our life, well, we think it's all gonna be okay in the end because I've prayed a prayer. And Jesus in the passage is saying, no way! No way! If you are my disciple, then you'll know so because you'll want to cut it off. This is how you know you're really a disciple of Jesus. See, I'll tell you a story. Back in the early 2000s, some of you know this story, I'm sure, Aaron Ralston was hiking through Utah's Blue John Canyon. And what should have been an eight-hour trek turned into an ordeal. While scrambling through a narrow canyon, Ralston accidentally dislodged an 800-pound rock that rolled over and fell on his arm, pinning him. And for five days, he was stuck there. 
his resources ran out, and he knew he had no hope of rescue, and so he was gonna have to do something dramatic or he was going to die there. And so gritting his teeth, he broke his own forearm and then took out his little multi-tool and sawed through his skin and tendon. Cutting off his arm to save his life. You guys took that a lot better than the first service. I had people like squirming and covering their ears and children saying, wow! And y'all just took it like, I'd do the same thing. (laughs) So like, wow, props to you guys. It actually is a story though that illustrates the point so well. We can't imagine having to make a choice like this one, but if you think about it, strictly logical, it's a pretty reasonable choice he made, right? Do I wanna die with both hands or live with just one? And Jesus is saying something similar. His disciples are willing to take radical steps to protect their sexual purity. Radical to the extent of amputating things from their lives. So, what needs cut out of your life? If you look at your life and you say that you regularly fall into sexual temptation or sin on the internet, probably through your phone, and you say, well, I don't know what to do, I've tried to get accountability, I've tried to get a filter, I think Jesus is telling you it's time to get rid of your phone. It's time to at least dumb down your phone, because better to have a dumb phone and go into heaven than have a smartphone and go into hell. See, Jesus is saying that the person that follows him enjoys the richest relationship with the Lord, with the God who is pure, and is therefore willing to make radical choices to keep that and preserve that precious gift. Or let's take work. If there's a particular temptation at work, an individual that your heart is growing fond of and you've tried not to look, but they're always there and you can feel an attraction building up inside of you, Jesus is saying the person who lives in my kingdom is willing to go and get a new job. Because of that person. Because it's more profitable to be vocationally amputated than it is to be eternally damned. And you say, but wait wait a minute, Jace. I accepted Jesus into my heart. I know he's my savior. I've prayed the prayer. Are you saying I'm not gonna go to heaven because I won't leave my job? No, I'm saying that Jesus says that his disciples are willing to make radical sacrifices for sexual purity. Again, that's how you know you're his disciple. Followers of Jesus think this way. Or ladies, what about your fashion choices? In Matthew 18, Jesus says it's better to have a millstone fastened around your neck and drowned in the sea than it is to cause someone to sin. This isn't to excuse the guys. Guys, we're responsible with what we do with our eyes and how we feed sexual lust. So I'm not excusing the guys here, but ladies, if you love your brothers in Christ in a righteous way, you may have to become fashion amputees. 
Not because we have a rule here. Not because there are some kind of modesty police guarding the doors of our church, checking skirt lengths or something. But because you have a mindset that loves your brother and guards sexual purity. And that informs how you dress. And again, the problem is not addressing attractively, but addressing seductively. Or how about your entertainment choices? So often, Jenny and I feel like social amputees because we look up every movie and TV show that we're going to watch. We use websites like Plugged In Online. And we feel like there's just so much we can't watch that others are watching. And this is how it settled on me as I was preparing. I was thinking, what do I want to say? How do I express my heart here? Here's what it is. Christ died to make me pure. And the closer I get to meeting Jesus face to face, the more resolved I am to never intentionally watch a show or movie where I know I will see someone naked. That that doesn't do anything to advance my holiness, and it doesn't do anything to honor them either. And frankly, I want to invite you to join me in this resolution. Job 31, verse one, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. And if you're struggling with lust here, if you're struggling with sexual immorality, if you haven't already done this, one radical thing you're gonna need to do is bring it into the light. You need to amputate your pride and tell a friend about your struggle. I'm serious about what I'm gonna say next. I think you need to tell your spouse. Some of you are thinking, man, I'd rather gouge out my eye than tell my spouse. And that's exactly why I think you need to do it. Because we have to be willing to get radical in our fight for purity. Jesus' disciples think this way. One more application I want to make. Taken in context... If you look at this passage in your Bible, it always makes sense to me that it's followed by this section on divorce, that Jesus connects sexual morality and lust to divorce after it. Only for the first time this week did I wonder if Jesus also intentionally connected this section on lust to the section that precedes it on anger. And so I thought about that. And I realized, I think it's true, in marriage, anger and immorality often travel together. So for instance, when a wife gets mad at her husband, 
if she has become embittered toward him or disappointed in him, one of the things that she will often do is either cut off the marriage bed or simply stop cultivating a fruitful sex life. Or for married guys who get trapped into a, or go off into a world of sexual fantasy, it often begins when they are ticked at their wife. They're angry because they're not getting something they wanted or over how they've spoken to them or how they've been treated, and they use their anger to justify their sexual fantasies, to justify their lust. You see, anger often makes the bed that lust and immorality lie in. So wives, if you want to be passionate about purity, you got to be passionate about forgiveness. And husbands, if you want to fight lust, then you got to fight for reconciliation in your marriage. Otherwise, we're going to tempt each other to an affair of the heart, or even worse, an affair of the flesh. I want to conclude with this. Several years ago, Jenny and I read a book by Sheldon, I can never say his last name right, Vanaken, I think it is. It's called A Severe Mercy. Anyone ever read it? Just a couple of you. It's a great book. It's about love and the love that Sheldon shared with his wife, Davy. And in it, he tells about a concept they came up with early in their marriage called the shining barrier. Here's how Sheldon described the shining barrier. He said, the shining barrier is the shield of our love. It is a walled garden, a fence around a young tree to keep the deer from nibbling it, a fortified place with the walls and watchtowers gleaming white like the cliffs of England, the shining barrier, we called it so from the first, protecting the green tree of our love. In another part, he explains, we raise the shining barrier against creeping separateness, which was in the last analysis, self. We also raised it against a world of indecencies and decaying standards. Friends, the shining barrier is what we're talking about today. It's an apt description of what Jesus is calling us to. Sexual intimacy in marriage is a gift to be protected. We protect it from an indecent world and we protect it even from ourselves so that the young tree of love can grow up into a towering oak of righteousness. Only we have to do the work of erecting that barrier and maintaining it for the glory of God. This is the good work Jesus has freed us to do, to protect joy so that we can know joy within its safe bounds. I pray you'll enjoy that work this week. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, as I said when we began, your word is a searching word and it has searched our hearts. Some of us sit uncomfortably under conviction. Lord, I pray that you would need conviction gently, like needing needing bread and kneading it in. I pray you would need conviction into our hearts, Lord. Some of us are, have hardened our hearts in this area. And we just need your spirit to help soften us and press it in and purify us from the inside out. I pray that you would begin that good work today and I pray for, I pray for others who are tempted under a passage like this one with condemnation, Lord, I pray that you administer to them there is now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is real and forgiveness is full. And we are free in Jesus. Jesus, you came to give us not only forgiveness, but a fresh start as well. And many of us are leaving here today with renewed resolve. We got strength put back into us. And I pray you'd help send us back out, Lord, that we might apply this into our lives and be what Jesus has called us and made us to be, the salt and the light of the world. And may that be not just in the standards we live by, but in the health of our marriages and in the joy we have in sex and the beauty and the love and the wonder in our relationships that all ultimately point back to the intimacy we share with you through Jesus Christ. Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen and amen.